space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Temporal Trek Podcast. This is Season 1 and we are on Episode 5. We are on Season 4 of Enterprise and we are in the episode Awakening, which is also part of an overarching story over several other episodes. This is the first Enterprise episode that we've had in the Grand Rewatch. Uh, so I thought I'd start with uh, my traditional way of uh, introducing it and sort of coming at it from how I saw uh, Enterprise for the first time and, and what it means for me. Now, I've already stated in previous episodes that Voyager is my least favourite series. You can go back to that episode uh, when I'm talking about Death Wish. Even though I'm talking about an episode I absolutely love called Death Wish, Voyager overall is not the series that I go back to. It's not the one that I have as much personal engagement with. Second to that, penultimate to that, would be Enterprise. So even though it's lowest down on one of my rankings, it's it's still not a reflection on the character, on the writing. It's more a reflection on what the series means to me. Now, when I do sort of rank this in my head, again, I'm not saying it's a definitive ranking. There's no gatekeeping here. I'm not telling you that they, you know, it's definitively and objectively the worst series or anything like that. Just saying that in my own personal experience, when I want to watch a, an episode of Star Trek, when I have fond memories of Star Trek, when I try to think of what Star Trek truly is, it's not the first season that comes to mind. There was a lot of hype around Enterprise. We'd just come out of sort of the first golden age of Star Trek. We'd have TNG straight into DS9, then into Voyager, and then we'd had just a, the tiniest inklings that they were going to try and make another series. And then things about Enterprise started leaking. Uh, some of the information was coming out. Uh, and then the ugly word came out, prequel. Now, at the time, the word prequel was very dirty, as I suppose it still is today to some respect. Lots of people hear prequel and it sort of creates that sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction. You just sort of shudder and, and send yourself backwards. But when you hear the word prequel, it's hard not to think of another Star franchise that was going through a set of prequel movies at the time which were not hitting all the right notes for fans. So to hear that Star Trek was going to do the same thing, rather than going boldly forward, it was going backwards, then going forward. Uh, it was going to detail this first ship called the Enterprise, which up till now had never been mentioned. It wasn't so, something that was being taken from like a, uh, you know, a tiny little bit of nugget of information from an old movie or from an episode. You know, it wasn't expanding on a bit of the universe that we'd heard about, but we want to know more about. Um, you know, the the constant complaint that I often see from those people who uh, want to see new Star Trek is that why don't we talk about something we already know about? Why do we have to reinvent a prequel history? And to some extent, I can kind of see that, you know, but there is an element where it would be almost like the snake feeding on its own tail. It would be sort of looping back on itself. So to have taken something that was established and then run with it, you're kind of living in your own nostalgia. If we go back to that episode set in the Nexus, if you're stuck in your nostalgia, are you really accomplishing anything? Are you actually going anywhere? Whereas Enterprise was swinging for the fences. 
it wanted to take something that had never been done, uh, never been seen in the franchise at least, and told us a brand new story. It told us something else. That was what I think the premise of the show was. It was about telling not only the first series, I know that's the hype that they like to say, is that, you know, this was the first crew, this was uh, humanity just as it's getting out of its dark phases and its, its prejudices and things like this. And, you know, we don't have transporters, we don't have uh, e easy to, to reach replicators and all this kind of stuff. That was the big push. But to me, the premise of the show was about trying something new. We'd had three iterations of Trek which had almost retreaded old ground. It had gone over the same sort of issues. It had sort of seen the morality play out. There was very little you could do in that time period, in that way of thinking, in that 90s way of producing Star Trek into the, the early noughts. That was ringing stale, that, you know, it, it wasn't going anywhere. So they needed to freshen it up a bit. And by taking humanity back to the point where it still hadn't got things quite right, it would be a great way of showing, you know, how did the Prime Directive come about? How did we elevate ourselves from these flawed creatures of humanity that we know today to this grand, wonderful time of Kirk and going forward? So by setting it 100 years before, it was a great premise. Fortunately, because the creative team behind it was pretty much the same as what had come before, it never stepped out of that bounds. Similar to my problems with Voyager, it had a great premise that, for me, it just didn't live up to. So that's why I don't hold Enterprise in as high a regard. It also came at the same time as Voyager, where I was trying to knuckle down my studies. Voyager was overlapping with my A-levels, well, GCSE into A-levels, I should say, and then Enterprise was a university onwards. Now, there's a whole other uh, story to Enterprise that is a bit of nostalgia for me, and it does link in with a bit of personal history. Uh, the Enterprise uh, series was about to start in September of 2001, if you remember. Now, I wonder what else happened in September 2001. Oh, yes, that event, 9-11, happened. Um, now, that wasn't exactly when uh, it was supposed to air. I believe the date was something in the 20s, I think the 25th, 26th, something like that, on the UPN network. I was actually in Florida on holiday with my family. The very first holiday that we'd had as a family, flying anywhere. We'd never been on a plane before. Now, at this time, I'm 18 years old. I'd never been on a plane with my family. I'd been on a plane as part of a school trip, but it was a one-hour flight into Europe uh, for a short two days and then flying back. So that was my experience of flying. I went out to Florida. We'd been out there for, I think, about, I want to say about a week, maybe eight, nine days, something like that, when 9-11 happened. And we'd been in the protective bubble of the Disney part of Florida. You know, I'm not saying that that was America, but our experience of America was was happy it was smiles you had that you know legendary american customer service it was around you all the time now of course they could be different around america but in that bubble of disney it was it felt like a very safe place it felt like a very happy place the happiest place on earth you might say we were there when this horrible disaster happened 9-11 happened we were out and about we were, i think we were going shopping at one point uh, we we're going to just spend a bit of uh, a bit of our dollars you know dollars were still new to us as well uh, and we were just going to go out and shops were shut you know it wasn't a Sunday because we thought oh maybe you know it's a Sunday maybe it's quite a you know a religious state so maybe they're all off at church that sort of thing I think it was middle of the week and we were going around and shops were shutting and the people everywhere seemed really down and 
weren't looking to talk to us as they had been before. They they seemed in shock, as though something had happened and we just hadn't seen it. Little do we know, we hadn't seen it. It wasn't until later that we were going past a shoe shop, and I can't remember the name of it, but on a TV screen, we looked through the glass doors of the shop, and we saw the TV screen and the employees still inside the shop, with everything closed, watching this TV watching as these iconic towers were falling out of the sky. They were on fire, there was smoke, everything. Eventually, we started to glean what had actually happened. There were other tourists around us, other Brits, uh, some other Europeans. I think there was a German family at one point, and also an, a couple of American families as well, who, who just simply hadn't known. They hadn't had their radios on or hadn't listened to the TV. They're, they'd just been out and about enjoying their day. They were also experiencing the same thing. As soon as they found out, you could see the sudden sea change in their ability to just interact with anyone. It was so bizarre to watch uh, people going through uh, what seemed so, such a, a personal trauma, and yet it was something happening states away, hundreds of miles away. But it completely changed the mood. And why am I bringing this up? Well, obviously it's two weeks before Enterprise. Me, being an obsessive Star Trek fan, I was thinking about university, but I was also thinking about, oh, this is great new enterprise thing about, you know, the hopeful vision of the future, what's to come, how humanity will move on from its its darker side to the lighter side. And here we are witnessing horrific action created by human beings. We would later find out for religious reasons and for political reasons and so forth and so forth. But there we were experiencing the lovely bubble of Disney, almost a Star Trekian sort of bubble, you know, a very jovial and happy kind of bubble, and that bubble gets burst. I'm seeing a hopeful vision being destroyed in front of my eyes, and Enterprise is there a couple of weeks later trying to rejuvenate that. And it felt hollow, it felt different. That's no fault of the Enterprise uh, crew and production, it's no fault of the actors. They were bringing out a TV show built for the hopeful 90s when something like that happens. They had to quickly change how they were going to write their stories, present their stories, and what kind of message they were going to try and deliver to uh, a public, to an American audience, but then eventually the international audience who are dealing with this change in the world. Now, I will say a couple of days later, we went back to the airport to try and come home from Florida. Uh, flights were still delayed and cancelled. They were still trying to get some of the tourists out. There was still this um, mission to get people who had their flights cancelled in the immediacy of the event and try and get them home, and then subsequently try and get rid of everybody else as well. We were lucky enough to have gone through a travel company who had taken everyone from those flights and put them up in some really nice hotels. I remember, though, driving to this new hotel to stay there a couple of days and driving past military vehicles on the road. Now, that wasn't an immediate reaction to uh, the event. It may have just been that they were um, troops being you know, moved from one fort to another. But the idea that 9-11 had happened and we were seeing American troops in vehicles going up and down the roads. I believe President Bush was actually in Florida at the time it happened. So maybe there was other things going on there, sort of uh, other military events. But it added to this atmosphere that America had changed, that perhaps even the world was about to change, as it did. It made us more aware of our flights, of perhaps the impact of the Western world on the rest of the world, and perhaps that wasn't a positive thing. These things were going through my mind. We eventually got home, and I hear that Enterprise is premiered, that it were debuted on the UPN network out there, I believe 25th, 26th, 
I'll have to look that one up. And then I waited. I waited to see if my favourite show was going to come over to the UK and whether it would be different, whether it would react to this world around us, whether the stories were going to truly reflect what was going on. Now, a few months later, over here in the UK, Channel 4 get the rights to show Enterprise, not the BBC. The BBC had had all of Star Trek up to that point, but Enterprise was being touted as this new show, this new direction. Like I say, the premise was that it was a new kind of way of presenting Star Trek. So Channel 4, being the sort of hip new audience, they got the rights, they started playing it. It was a different way of watching it because for the first time we were watching Star Trek with advert breaks, uh, but it was also with this, this feeling that the show was appealing to a new audience. And whilst there were elements of it that appealed to that, we had these antagonists called the Sulaban. I mean, how unbelievable is that, that the Sulaban are brought into Star Trek at a time when the main adversary of the Western world was called the Taliban. Suliban and the Taliban, it was just it was just too perfect. It was almost as though they wrote they wrote it on the hoof. Uh, as soon as uh, 9-11 had happened, they changed the name of the, uh, the alien race. But the stories kept coming. Every week we got Star Trek Enterprise, and it was being delivered in exactly the same way that all of Star Trek had been delivered before. There were elements that pushed the envelope a little bit, but it never really broke out of that 90s mould of Star Trek. It never took the premise of a humanity clawing its way out of World War III, going for something better. It gave the impression that humanity was good. And, you know, other than a bit of technology that we hadn't invented yet, this was pretty much the same as the Star Trek had been before. Now, a little tangent here. It's also one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of the current Orville TV show. Now, I know Orville is uh, not Star Trek. I don't consider it Star Trek. Yes, it looks like Star Trek with the uniforms and the tech and that sort of thing. But the reason I don't like Orville is that from all of the advertising material, everything like that, it was looking to be a Star Trek parody in the same vein as Galaxy Quest, which I revere as one of the best parodies I've ever seen of Star Trek, and was going to take all of those tropes and play with them, have some genuine fun and play with them. What was delivered was actually something that was trying to be Star Trek, almost like watching I don't know, a YouTube parody with a bit of a budget behind it. It really, for me, hasn't delivered on what was promised. The same thing with Enterprise as well. Getting back onto the subject, Enterprise for me never really delivered on that. Now, I'm sorry, I've probably waffled on for far too long. Uh, on my personal viewpoints. And it might seem that, well, you've sort of talked about this a lot longer than you hated on Voyager or uh, that you say you didn't like Voyager. I think it's because I had so many more expectations because of the time in history when it was being released, because of the experience that I'd had being in America, I was expecting so much more. The thing is, I do think Enterprise tried to turn it around. By season three and eventually by season four, when this episode happens, I think Enterprise was aware that it needed to make the change, and it tried. But unfortunately, it was just too late. Season 1 and 2, as some of those episodes are amazing, still hadn't delivered enough to keep it going. The momentum had been lost. So by Season 4, things were going, and the show is cancelled. But it still holds that little bit above Voyager for at least trying something new. Right, I'm off my high horse. I apologise now. But to give you a little bit of a background on how I view the series, we're only looking at this one clip from one episode of what I think is the best season of Enterprise, and I think most people do as well, season four. Season four lent in on so many of the past tropes 
but try to do something different, as with this story about the Vulcans. Now, I'm not going to go into more details because we are only looking at this clip, but it took an established race and tried to make it a little bit more grey. There wasn't this monoculture that all Vulcans are logical and act in the same way. It tried to do something different, something I was hoping that all of Enterprise would do. But we are beginning this episode from Awakening in Season 4 of Enterprise at timestamp 11 minutes, 18 seconds. We have sort of a, a flash and Archer is standing in a desert, uh, sort of a cave area, uh, but overlooking this, this massive flat area, uh, which eventually becomes Vulcan. We see explosions, there seems to be some aerial fight, there seems to be some bombardments happening off in the distance. There's a strange sort of chime choral music playing in the background, and uh, a Vulcan appears off to the side of Archer. Now, this is another one of those scenes where we're watching history happen, but it's history that's been passed on through some sort of telepathic mind meld, um, as it were. Now, I know what it actually is, but again, this is another instance of being shown how history happened, not affecting history happening, but it has been committed to screen and therefore is part of this podcast. This Vulcan appears and says that war is taking its toll. Vulcan is tearing itself apart. Archer asks, who are you, the random Vulcan? He doesn't actually give him an answer, but the Vulcan just says, you know who I am. At that moment, a nuclear bomb explodes. We see the mushroom cloud off in the distance. Clearly, this is Vulcan during its barbaric times. A nice little callback to our previous episode where we were talking about Spock reverting to his barbaric nature. We see that here, the Vulcans were using exceptionally powerful weapons as part of their barbarism. This Vulcan, however, seems very emotionless. He seems like a classic kind of Vulcan. He says that so much death, hard to believe that this will become known as the Time of Awakening. And it's at this point that Archer says, that was almost 1800 years ago. So, 1800 years ago, I'm going to try and give you a bit of background to Earth history at that point. So 1800 years ago, we're roughly in the 200 ADs, or uh, the 200 before Common Era, if you want to use the current terminology. Again, trying to break it into the sort of areas of the planet, uh, it's quite hard to come across certain areas, sometimes uh, North American history, Russian history is actually quite hard to find at the moment, um, so I am trying to be very, very generic. Uh, African history is also quite hard to research as well, but for me, the Four main areas are definitely Europe, Middle East, and then trying to get some Africa uh, into there. The Far East, which I'm trying to also bring some Russia into that as well. And the Americas, which is both South and North America. So in Europe, Rome is in tatters. The Roman Empire officially has already fallen, but is still in its sort of separate phases, its separate states. Different states, such as Britain, where I live today, are being ruled by Roman generals, people who are standing in for the empire. But the amount of emperors that Rome has is shifting almost on a yearly, if not monthly, basis. There's a large-scale killing of Christians who are ever so slightly gaining traction uh, and becoming a dominant force within the Roman Empire. The, the Emperor Decius at the time is well known for slaughtering a lot of Christians at this point to try and reinforce the Roman belief systems and gods. This time period is also seen as the end of the classical era of philosophy with sort of the last Greek philosopher uh, Plotinus who is uh, born at this time as well, about 200 AD. So it's interesting to see that in this episode of 
of Enterprise, we are seeing what becomes the birth of modern Vulcan philosophy, the logic, uh, and uh, we're seeing the death of the classic philosophy on Earth. That's a nice little aside for me, I just like that sort of thing. In the Middle East, uh, Rome, because it is sort of falling apart, is looking to expand its territories again, or reclaim some of the territories it's lost as it's crumbling away. Uh, its focus then sort of turns towards the Middle East and also North Africa as well. You're seeing the sacking of Byzantium again. Uh, it was part of the Roman territory, then lost, then brought back again. The Persian area, which becomes Iran, into sort of the Afghanistan countries. You've got uh, the Sasanian dynasty being formed, which was a very long Persian dynasty there. Uh, that lasted a good hundred years or so. From there, you've then got into Afghanistan. You're now getting the Hun uh, from uh, the Mughal areas, Mongolia, stretching up to Afghanistan. So it's sort of pushing against the Persian empires as well. So the classical European world is being clashed with the Far Eastern world as well. There is a sense of the Hun, who are seen as sort of barbaric, but were exceptionally advanced for their time are butting up against other powers like that. In the Far East, we've got uh, the Japanese Empress uh, Jingu. Uh, she launches uh, a sea-based invasion of Korea, uh, one of the largest of its time, according to the research that I found, uh, which leads to an immediate surrender by the Koreans. They simply see the ships coming and lay down their weapons. It must have been an impressive sight for that time. In China at this time, uh, about 50 years after the period I'm looking at, so this is uh, 250 AD or uh, before Common Era, gunpowder is invented in China. So now just think of that. The Vulcans were using nuclear weapons. We see a nuclear detonation and China has only just made gunpowder. It's quite a nice little side-by-side -side there. In North America, we're now coming into what we would now consider the Copper Age. Now for us, the Copper Age had been a good thousand years beforehand. We've sort of seen the stone into Copper Age. The Copper Age has now developed into the North Americas. So North American tribes, Native Americans, are developing copper all on their own. The technology has taken a few thousand years, but they've got there. South America, however, is incredibly advanced at this point. Now just think, back to Europe and everything, you've got Roman Empire level technology, you've got copper, you've got everything, you've got um, that military way of thinking. In the Far East, you have ships capable of causing the entire country to surrender just at the look of them. But there's another empire out there, but it's completely cut off. It's isolated from the world. And it's not just an empire, it's almost a federation. In South America, you have the Moche, M-O-C-H-E. They become the most advanced civilization for that region ever. They are building uh, things such as the Pyramid of the Sun uh, down in Peru near the Andes. You have the high Andes cultures, but they are working with several other cultures from the region. More in the Amazon, you've got uh, the Arawak tribes. You've then got um, further down, you have uh, the Nazca who envelop quite a large bit of the rainforest all the way down to in the South Americas as well. They are an incredibly interconnected and productive, almost democratic, coalition of different cultures. They aren't fighting. They're actually bartering with each other. They are economically living in each other's pockets. So even though they are highly industrious, they create stone pyramids, they create copper pyramids, they have an incredible vast network of technology but they're not fighting each other, unlike as we're seeing elsewhere in Rome and in the Middle East. You'd think it'd be the other way around. Being contained in just one part of the continent, they'd be constantly infighting. But 
elsewhere in the world where there is tons of room, they're all fighting. It's quite an interesting little thing for me to, to look at there. That's another thing I find fascinating, the idea that the whole bunch of cultures are actually working together despite surely everything about their geography pointing to them having to fight each other. And here endeth the lesson. Let's get back to the episode. Archer says that this doesn't feel like a dream, so it's one reason why I'm putting these kinds of hallucinatory images as part of this podcast. He says it doesn't feel like a dream. If it were a dream, I would count that as a simulation and it wouldn't be actual history. This seems to be much more. This is almost a memory as if he's living in history. For me, time isn't just about moving through time and physically changing your body. You are perceiving time differently. Same reason why we had all of season zero the creatures who live out there, whether it be the Q Continuum or the land of the prophets inside the wormhole, it's perceiving time differently. This mind meld or whatever this memory might be allows Archer to perceive time differently. It's not a dream as far as he sees it. This Vulcan is standing next to him and he says you don't trust Vulcans, but he also then says that the culture that you know isn't the culture that I helped create. So it comes back to this idea that Enterprise was trying to do something different. It was trying to move away from what was the monoculture that we'd seen in Star Trek up to that point. You know, Klingons bad, Romulans untrustworthy, Vulcans logic. You know, try and move away from a single definition of a species to a far more realistic portrayal of a culture. It also introduces this sense that, you know, the Vulcans that Archer's been dealing with who he resents, and again, you know, there's more details I could give you, but just based on this clip, we know he resents them. There's more to it, that there's perhaps a conspiratorial side to them, something that uh, they don't want humans, perhaps just Archer, but humans in general, to see about themselves. The Vulcan in the image uh, says that my people have strayed, uh, and that it will take something to bring them back to what he was trying to represent. Archer sort of laughs this off, you know, he, he doesn't want anything to do with this, he doesn't want to be responsible for any kind of change from just that sort of uh, body language that he's giving to this Vulcan. And the Vulcan says that there's Earth expression, we're stuck with each other. Now I like that, it's going both ways. Archer is seeing Vulcan's past, but this Vulcan, even if he was a figment of his own imagination, is using human future to kind of try and win the argument and bring him round. I thought it was a quite a nice way that the flow of time is working both ways. The Vulcan then says, open your mind and heart and the way will become clear. And we stop at timestamp 13 minutes and nine seconds. So moving on to our next rating criteria, continuity. This scene plays really well into a Star Trek fan's hands. I know I'm sort of preempting my next category, but it really does. We know the Vulcan was a barbaric place. We know that now because of our previous episode. McCoy explained it to us. The barbaric Vulcans were out there. This is literally showing us how barbaric they were. At a time when Earth was still going through all of the ancient history, it was using nuclear weapons. Vulcan was tearing itself apart, literally as that Vulcan said. So it's not just telling us, it's showing us what Vulcan was actually like at the time. It's a beautiful bit of continuity. Because of the nature of this memory being passed on, it plays really well into the continuity so far. It's not time travel, it's not gonna change anything, but the existence of this memory will change Vulcan society. This has a huge bearing on what will come next. What will inform characters like Spock in the future? What will inform other characters? Perhaps even characters in the Enterprise series. Again, I know what's about to happen. I know the impact. 
but if you were just taking on this scene, some of the words being said imply that the knowledge of what Vulcan was going through and what this random Vulcan was trying to build will change the rest of Vulcan history. So for continuity, this is exceptionally important. It's also a nice little aside and gives us a bit of a glimpse into Archer as a character. This does in a few minutes what almost the first two seasons of Enterprise tried to do. It, it already sets up that he hates Vulcans. And this will bring me into my next grating category, alterations. Now imagine if this were the first episode of Enterprise. What if Captain Archer is the first explorer who's going to be using the Enterprise uh, to go out into space and is going to herald in a new era of humanity? But first they've got to break away from the Vulcans. Now I know I'm bringing in extra hi uh, history here. I'm trying to uh, justify this based on my knowledge from the rest of Enterprise, but bear with me for a second. What if Captain Archer is about to set foot on that ship and there's a Vulcan on his ship? Of course, I'm going to use the word Topol. Strangely enough, I thought it might sound like a nice Vulcan name. Topol, I don't know, accidentally goes to give him a mind meld to try and explain why the Vulcans don't want him to leave. And perhaps he taps into, accidentally, a part of the barbaric side of the Vulcans that they don't want humanity to see. Perhaps he touches Surak and the teachings of logic. Perhaps he sees that the Vulcans aren't that dissimilar from humans. And that will send him out on a grand adventure, not only to explore, and we have our standalone episodes as we've seen in Enterprise, but there's another thing in him now. He sees that it's not just humanity that needs to change, that other species are capable of change too. And it gives him the seed, the idea of what will later become the Federation. And the Enterprise, the grand Enterprise of Star Trek, is to try and bring all of those species together and go forward together. Now this was something that actually came to me as I was watching this clip in the rewatch. That wasn't something that occurred to me when I was first watching this almost 20 years ago now. But imagine if that had been the start. What if we'd started with the Vulcans? Forget the Klingons, forget what actually happened in season one, the Sulaban and taking all that sort of thing. What if it was the Vulcans who were the impetus of change. As it said in First Contact, as it went from all the previous things that have been said in Star Trek, what if that was where it had really started? It would have taken the familiar, expanded on it, but not relied heavily on it. It had taken the new direction, but was still giving that callback, that nod, that wink to the past. Recommendations. Do I recommend this scene to Star Trek fans? I would say yes. It depicts something that we know was always going to happen with the Vulcans. It depicts something that we all know the Vulcans have gone through. Uh, it just plays into that. It's a nice little character study for Archer. In a few lines, we get his hatred and mistrust of the Vulcans and so on. So for Star Trek fans, yes, absolutely, I recommend this scene. For non-Star Trek fans, there's a lot of context here. As you saw in my uh, alterations recommendation, there's, there's a lot you would need to know about Star Trek and what it's already done to perhaps appreciate what could have been done using storylines like this. So 
For a non-Star Trek fan, there's really nothing I can say. To our godlike entities looking to rewatch everything, I think this informs the Vulcan character more than quite a lot of episodes to come. So to the godlike entities, I would actually watch this to cement where the Vulcans came from and what they eventually achieve. So all that remains is for me to set up the next episode. Join us next time when we go to Voyager Season 6, Dragon's Teeth. We are going to timestamp zero minutes, zero seconds, right at the beginning of the episode. Nice and handy. Join us next time. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at Rider underscore Coattail, or contact me directly at Hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all. But if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon and we'll catch you in the next time stream. The music in the background of the historical section of this episode was a combination of both Roman and Babylonian lyre music performed by Michael Levy.